Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you back to Grace Crossing Church this morning. Uh, we are in part two, week two of our series, our four-week series, uh, Got at the Box Office, where we're focusing on the Jason Bourne movies. Uh, how many of you happened to see this past week a Jason Bourne movie after last weekend? Anybody here have a chance to take a look at one? Good. Excellent. Well, this morning, as we come to week number two, just want to remind us of where we are in this series. Uh, last weekend, we, we talked about the fact that every single one of us, like Jason Bourne, are searching for our identity. And here's the reality. Like Jason Bourne, many of us live our entire lives fulfilling someone else's prophecy or someone else's plan for our lives. So until we know who we are, we'll actually ascribe an identity to ourselves based on what other people say about us, based on what I do, my position, my titles, my accomplishments, or based on what I did, failures, shortcomings, mistakes, and sins in my life. And here's why that's so dangerous. I don't think a person will live their life or will act very long in a manner that is inconsistent with who they believe themselves to be. Hence the first grade child who said, I'm dumb. You see, we actually live up to what we believe our identity is based on the false things that have been said about us, the things that we do that we think define us, or the things that we have done. And so last weekend, we gave the frame for this series with this verse. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give life in all of its fullness. So so Satan has come, and really he has three objectives. He wants to steal our identity... He wants to kill our true self, and He wants to destroy God's image in us. And so He comes as a thief. In 1998, Kamaya Mobley was just eight hours old when she was snatched from a hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. And she was taken to South Carolina... And she was raised under a completely false identity. The lady who took her actually got a birth certificate and put her actual birth date on it, the date of her kidnapping, which actually was used by detectives 18 years later to finally solve the case. And after her identity was revealed and was verified by DNA match, she was reunited with her biological parents and had a chance to see them for the first time in 18 years. Now, if you're a parent here, can you just imagine what 18 years would have felt like not knowing anything about your child's whereabouts or your child's identity? Now, here's the good news. When you are born, you receive a unique identity. Your fingerprints are unlike anyone else's. Your DNA is unlike anyone else's. You may have a doppelganger or two, but there is nobody in the world who's just like you. You are one of a kind. And so when you're born, you get a unique identity. But according to the Scripture, when you are born again, you are returned to your rightful place as God's child, 
There is a spiritual DNA match that takes place, and all of a sudden, your true identity comes into clear focus. That's what the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. When someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. All these new things are from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ Jesus did. That word there, brand new inside, comes from the Greek word that we get our English word metamorphosis. It means not something that's just a little different. It means a brand new species. So when Jesus Christ gave his life for you and me, the reality is we do not become a better version of ourselves. We become a brand new you, a brand new person in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says he'd not only transform us, but watch this, he now identifies us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. When you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. So here's our big idea for this series. Your identity is not defined by what you say about yourself or what someone else says about you. Your identity is not defined by what you do or what you did. Our identity is solely based upon what God says about us and what God did for us. And last weekend, we ended with one verse of Scripture I want to pick up this weekend. Found just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21, It says, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. This single verse changes everything, absolutely everything, about our identity. And last weekend, I'm not sure we really got a hold of what this suggests. And so I want to revisit it briefly this morning, and I'm going to add to it because there is powerful principles that are given to us in this particular verse and in this entire passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's the reality. Jesus never, ever committed sin. He was perfect. And yet on the cross, He takes on the identity of, of sin, something he had never done before. And why does he do it? He does it so that we, who can never be righteous enough for God, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much good work we do, no matter how uh, perfect we may feel like we are, we will never live up to God's standards of us. We will never meet and measure up to the metric of his righteousness. And so what happens? Jesus never sinned, becomes sin. We who never can become righteous take on a brand new identity. We literally become the righteousness of God. It is not what we do. It is not our performance. This is not about our behavior. This is about what God says that we are because of what Jesus Christ did for us and now what God says about us. 
I want to back up two verses earlier, and I want you to see verse number 19, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, because it adds value to what we're talking about here. God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself, no longer counting men's sins against them, but blotting them out. This is a wonderful message that he has given us to tell others. This verse is theologically loaded. But there are two things that I want to point out and I want to focus on and unpack in this verse and then we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning focused on a spiritual story that beautifully illustrates what we're talking about this morning. The first thing I want to point out in this verse is who the pursuer is. Who is the one that is initiating? Who is the one that is trying to set us up for a new normal, for our new identity? God was in Christ restoring. And so we are not the initiators of this. We are not the pursuers of God. God is first the pursuer of us. So it took 18 years for them to find Kamaya Mobley and identify her actual identity. When it comes to God, it doesn't matter if it's 8 years or 18 years or 80 years. God will never stop pursuing you. God will never stop coming after you. Why? Because this is the mission. He is in Christ restoring and reconciling the world to himself. And that was actually the mission that brought Jesus here. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, actually says this. Chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man, notice, came to what? Seek. And not just seek, but to rescue, to save, to restore, to help us find our way back to God, to bring us back. We were lost, and God comes, and God is searching, and God finds us. And what does he do when he finds us? Well, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. There's a second thing that I want you to see. It says that he no longer counts our sins against us, but rather blots them out. Now, in the first century Greek language, uh, these were financial terms. They were actually used in the world of accounting. And they have to do with a transaction that takes place. But interestingly, these words that are used in the Greek language are words that we might use today in the financial world to mean cooking the books. So when an organization cooks the books, what they literally do is they minimize their liabilities and they increase their assets so that it can place them in a better financial position and put their company in a better view in people's eyes. It is unethical, it is illegal, but when it comes to God and what God did for us, watch this, it's exactly what God did. God literally, in a spiritual sense, cooks the books. He actually says, I'm not going to count your liabilities against you. 
I'm going to cover over your sins. I'm going to obscure your shortcomings from my view. And I'm going to treat you just as if you have never sinned. I am going to blot out of my memory the things that you have done. And not only that, but then he says, I'm now also going to add value to you. I'm going to increase your assets. That's exactly what happens when we come into faith, into a relationship with Christ. God no longer counts our sins against us, but literally he blots them out to remember them no more. So Jesus tells this remarkable, spectacular parable. It's a story, a spiritual story. And he tells this story in direct response to religious people that were criticizing him and condemning him for doing this. And so before we look at the story, let's look at the reason that Jesus tells this story or this parable. It's found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And we're told this in verses 1 through 3. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Can you imagine? So Jesus told them this story. Here's the deal. Jesus seemed a whole lot more comfortable with the religious rejects and the social outcasts than he did with the religious elite. He seemed much more at home being in the presence of those people who were far from God. Why? Because that was his mission. And they didn't like it. And so they often criticized him, and Jesus says, okay, let me tell you a story. It is a parable, and it is called in our Bibles the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the word prodigal simply means spendthrift. One who is wasteful, one who is reckless, one who is extravagant, one who is lavish. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. This is not the parable of one prodigal. It's the parable of three. And here's the story he tells. Verse number 11. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Now, there are two issues with this. The first issue was that just like today, an inheritance is not given until there is the death of the person who established it. What the younger son was saying to his dad is this, you are dead to me. In my eyes, you are already gone. I have no honor for you. I have no respect for you. All I want is what's coming to me, and I just want to move on with my life. That was a huge problem, especially in an Eastern culture in the first century, where two-thirds of the inheritance 
always went to the oldest son. The rest of it was divided among the rest. But that's not what the Bible says here. What the Bible suggests here is that there was an equal division of the inheritance, which is unbelievable that a father in first century would do this. Unthinkable. And here was the second issue. The second issue was that he was the second son. He had absolutely no right to come to his father and demand his inheritance prematurely. Verse number 13. A few days later, the younger son packed all of his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time he ran out of money, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Talk about a fall from grace. Here is a young man that had everything at his disposal. Here is a young man in a home that had a father that loved him deeply, cared deeply about him. And yet he ignores and he leaves his rightful place in God. And whenever we leave our rightful place in God, we end up in the wrong places with the wrong people doing the wrong things. That's exactly where he found himself. And he's desperate. Not eating. Longing for just the food and the slop that he's serving to the pigs. Verse 17. When he finally came to his senses. His life has become a nightmare. Everything he had dreamed has gone sideways. But when he finally comes to his senses, he says to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father And I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. I think when we wander away from our true identity, we spend the better part of our lives wondering who we are. And asking ourselves the question, am I really loved? Am I really cared for? Do I really have a place of belonging in my family? Who am I really? A powerful scene in uh, The Bourne Supremacy, where Jason Bourne's lady friend actually at the early part of the movie says to him, when he wakes up from his nightmare, She says, keep writing down what comes to your mind. Because like pieces of a puzzle, one day it's all going to fit together and you're going to begin to understand your true identity, your born identity. He's out for a run on the beach and the young lady picks up a, a journal that he has been putting his thoughts in. And it is a collection of all of the things that he had been doing 
and, and more and more questions about his identity. Take a look at the scene. And that's the question the son is asking. As he's journeying back to his home, reluctant for what his father is going to do when he sees him. He's asking himself, who was I? He's asking himself, who am I really? And verse number 20, enter the narrative, the second prodigal, the prodigal father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Everything is wrong with this part of the story. In that particular culture, everything was wrong with the story. What father in their right mind would do this to a son who considered him dead in his eyes? Well, the illustration that God is using here is the illustration of God the Father. He's trying to teach and show the religious critics that there was a God that they were serving who they didn't really know, who they didn't really understand, and they certainly didn't fully appreciate. He is the God looking. He is the God running He is the God embracing. He is the God who's doing all the kissing. And when his son kneels before him, they have this powerful exchange. We read about it beginning in verse number 22. His father says to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his fingers and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And I love these last final four words. So the party began. Let's first of all look at what the father doesn't do. The father does not rub his son's face in his failures, and the father does not magnify his mistakes. The father doesn't remind him 
of how dirty he is, how smelly he is, how desperate he is. The father doesn't say to him, I told you so. This son does not need reminded. This son needs celebrated. And his dad knew it. And so what he does is he pulls out all the stops to make sure that everyone in that community would know that this son who was lost has been found. This son who was blind now sees. And we're going to throw the biggest celebration, the biggest block party that this community has ever seen in honor of our son who has come home. What an illustration of God's grace and of God's love for a son who forgot who he was, but his father wanted to fully remind him of who he was. Verse number 25 through 28, enter the narrative, the third prodigal, the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. He asked one of his servants, what is going on? Your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. Now, that word in the original language was not just he was a little ticked off. It literally means he was beside himself. He was inconsolable. He was so irate about what had happened that he refused to be a part of the celebration thrown by his dad. The younger son disrespected his father when he asked for the inheritance. But the older son disrespects his father by thinking he knows best. Put yourself in his place for a moment. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like you didn't get what you deserved? Have you ever felt like you got something you didn't deserve? I think when I read the narrative, I I can identify, I think many of us can, with this older brother who felt justified in his anger and in his rage. Besides, the younger brother had ripped him off of his birthright. He had taken what rightfully belonged to him. And so he has every right to be angry at his dad. Verse 28 continues. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes home after squandering your money, on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I think what's so remarkable about this particular exchange is how the older brother saw himself. When he thought about his identity, notice how he describes himself. I have slaved for you. So what was his identity of his relationship with his dad? He didn't see himself as a son. He saw himself in a relationship that was subservient. He saw himself as one who had to do what he did so that he could stay in the good favor and the good graces of his father so that one day 
He could get what was coming to him. And I think the older brother represents a lot of people who have been raised in Christian families, who have lived all of their lives in the church, who are religious in their ideology and tend to have a relationship with God that says, I am going to do the right things so that God will owe me. So that one day I will get from God what rightfully belongs to me. I think some of us, if we're not careful, we live in a relationship with God, frowning upon every younger brother who isn't good like us, who doesn't live up to our standards, and we tend to use it as a manipulation to control God and leverage influence and favor over our Father. Here's what the Father says, verse 31 and 32. His Father said, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. It is the father who had to remind the elder brother of his identity. You are not a slave. You have been acting all of these years like a slave, but that's not who you are. You're a son. And as a son, you have everything at your disposal that's mine. I I want it all to be yours. But the reality is you've not lived up to your identity. You have seen yourself in a way that is not honorable, is not pleasing to me. You are a dear son. And he had to remind this elder brother, he has to remind me, and I think sometimes he has to remind all of us of who we really are, that we are God's children. And nothing we ever do will change that fact. You can never do anything to make God love you more. And you can never do anything to make God love you less. God loves you because God is the initiator and God is the one who blankets an umbrella over our lives and says, this is who you are. You are my child. And so we know why why Jesus tells this parable. We know the audience. But the question this morning is, what is in this parable for us? What does God want us to gain from this parable? What is the message that God is trying to communicate through this narrative? Well, before I give you that, let me ask you a question. Which brother do you most identify with this morning and why now before you answer that question let me give you three things these brothers all had in common the first thing is this both of them were children of the same good good father Think about that for just a moment. If you're a parent of more than one child, you have asked yourself this question before. How can my children, raised in the same environment, with the same parents, in the same home, go in such different ways? How is that possible? 
And all of us at times wonder that. Like, how is it possible the same growth environment, the same nourishment, the same love, the same opportunities were afforded to each child? And yet one can go this way and the other can turn this way. As a pastor, I ask myself the same question spiritually. How is it that God's family, living in the same spiritual family in the same home, identifying with the same Heavenly Father, can live out their faith so differently? How's that possible? How's it possible we don't all get it? That we just don't all understand our identity. Both of these were children of the same good God, the same good Father. And yet both had a different reaction based on their identity, the way they saw themselves. The second thing I want you to know they shared in common was they both had an unhealthy view of their father. For the younger son, the father was a means to instant gratification. I want it now. To the older son, the father was a means to an end, an inheritance. For us today, there are some of us that live our Christian life as children of our good father, and we live thinking we want everything God has to give us. We're going to pray only if God will answer our prayers. We'll only be faithful to God if God will be faithful to us in every circumstance the way that we deem it appropriate. We're only going to give to God's kingdom if there's some benefit, material benefit in it for us. And then there are others of us who live our entire life just waiting for the fulfillment of the insurance policy to cash in. That's really all we're doing. We're buying our time because at the end of the day, we just want our inheritance. That's all that matters to us. Both of them had the same God, the same Father. Both had an unhealthy view of their Father, and both of them had an identity crisis. Think about this for just a moment. The younger son was self-absorbed. He was a me-pleaser. While the older son was self-righteous, he was a people-pleaser. In this case, a parent-pleaser. He was more concerned about doing what was right than he was having relationship with his dad. And so I want to re-ask you the question. Which child do you most identify with and why? I would suspect in this audience today there are some that identify clearly with the older son. We are living far from God, outside of our identity in Him. We are actually living a life in the wrong places with the wrong people doing the wrong things. We are literally living our lives at a pig trough, wondering when will it get better. But I suspect more of us can identify with that older son. We can identify with a son and a child that is called his child, that has all the benefits of a relationship with him, and yet we are just going through the motions, doing the right things, trying to perform for God's approval, rather than just enjoying our relationship and our identity in him. Behavior modification, behavior adjustment based on religion is superficial and shallow. 
But behavior adjustment based on relationship and grace is eternal. You see, the older son had a relationship with his dad. And that relationship was based on righteousness. Not his father's righteousness, his own. The younger son had a relationship with his father that was solely based on one thing, grace. I need him. I I accept his love. I go to the party because he throws it, not because I deserve it. He celebrates over me with dancing and song, even though I'm unworthy. I smell. There's nothing in the narrative that said he even had time to bathe and redress. All we know is the Father said, you don't need reminded of who you are. You need celebrated for who you are because this is who I call you. You are my child. I love you. And I want this relationship with you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.